Cool. Is everyone about done? No one's on, like, still reading the passage, are they? No. I know it was long, so, but I apologize. Well, I don't apologize for that at all, but um, uh, <laughs> uh, you can ask James about why he set that passage for so long. Anyway. Um, okay, so I want everyone to get their smartphone out, go to whatever notes app you have, and write down one thing, you sort of a soundbite of something that impacted you from the passage or the discussion you had, and, you know, just... Like, take 30 seconds to do that. Okay. Does anyone struggle to read the Bible every day or every morning? Okay, so that process took 10 minutes. And so all you have to do is take a verse or a chapter or a little subheading, ask yourself those four questions, write down something in a note, and you've, the Bible's spoken to you in 10 minutes. And so that's why we've been doing that at the start of every talk, to actually see how in a really short space of time we can ask God to reveal us something in a passage, and then actually we can learn to do that, not necessarily every day or whatever, whatever you want. I'm not putting anything on anyone. I'm saying actually that didn't take an hour to get something amazing from a passage. It took 10 minutes. And so actually we can all do that every day. And you don't even have to be any good at it. And you don't have to study the Bible. You just ask four questions. I dropped a pen and that was a little micro sermon. So that's all good. Anyway, the passage. There are about a million questions from the passage that I had the first time reading it. And they're all good and real questions that we probably shouldn't ignore. But sometimes, and, well, and sometimes the grit that the Bible gives us we can put layer on layer on layer and actually it becomes this beautiful pearl that we can sort of muse on and it takes us years, but finally we get it. But for the sake of this evening, I want to expand the message that Jesus has for us about what he speaks about in the last bit, the spiritual blindness. So I know there are lots of kind of cool questions about, you know, what, what is the question that the disciples ask at the beginning and what does Jesus mean by that? Or why does Jesus have to use spit and mud when in other places he just goes, bam, you're healed? Like, that's a question that I have about this passage. But today I'm going to be looking at spiritual blindness and what Jesus is saying through that. I think the big impact of this passage is us realizing that we are all the blind beggar in this scenario and Jesus is the light of the world, and through him we can see. Has anyone ever had to list their weaknesses for a job application or something like that? Obviously, I've never actually had a job, but, you know, it's like... Um, having to, so you have to say a weakness. I have had to write applications, so it still applies. It's fine. But, um, so, you, you know, you have to say a weakness, but then it's an application. You have to strong-arm it into a strength, but then you... If that's too obvious, then it looks like you're not self-aware and you're immature, which in itself is a weakness. So it all sort of goes full circle. You know, throughout my life, I've been in various ed educational institutions that have all had varied attitudes to weaknesses. Whether it was my primary school, where it seemed to be its sole purpose was to breed 13-year-olds who thought they were the most capable human in the world, or a second best, at least they, were, they thought they were that capable, even if they weren't. Or my secondary school where academic and extracurricular excellence were the only currency and where weakness was a failure. And, you know, never mind about talking about what it's like at Cambridge. But don't get me wrong, I loved school, you know, perhaps for all the reasons that I've just listed. But it produced in me a certain degree of self-assurance 
not on my faith in Jesus, but in myself. You know, even when I was working at a church during my gap year, we had a time where we had to name our weaknesses, and I simply couldn't do it. I just had nowhere to start. You know? <laughs> and I, I can imagine by you laughing, you, you could imagine some places to start. You know, maybe my wife could as well. But we'll leave the group counseling to another time. Okay? So let's talk about the man born blind. He's a beggar. Everyone thinks he's a sinner or his family is deep in sin. You know, people thought at the time that if a pregnant woman had, you know, secretly worshipped in a pagan temple, that because the fetus was there, the fetus counted as worshipping in a pagan temple too. And so maybe that's why it was born with a disability. And so they thought that both the child and the mother were steeped in sin. So it's fair to say that he's an outcast. He has no way of supporting himself. He was at the mercy of people giving him money in the streets. This guy doesn't have anything. So Jesus approaches him, rubs spit and mud in his eyes, and he doesn't even introduce himself. So now, do you think someone who had any pride, any assurance in his own strength to get himself out of that situation would have got up, wandered through the streets still blind, and to wash in a particular pool that he had no real significance to? He was completely at Jesus' mercy. Jesus could have been some guy just playing a joke on this beggar to entertain his friends. The man doesn't know who Jesus is, but all he knows is that whoever this man is, his plan for getting him out of this mess, even if it's a one in a million chance, has a better chance of helping him get out of the begging on the streets. The man understands where he's deficient. Now let's compare this to our own situation. You know, if I still can't see any of my witnesses, weaknesses, if I still can't see how my plan for getting through this life, of getting the, me out of the mess that I'm in, if I can't see it's not going to work, then how can I ever follow this man who's told me to go and wash it in a pool? And I'm talking about more cosmic weaknesses now. How we have no way of reconciling ourselves back to God. That there's no way we can undo our sin. The mess humanity is in by ourselves. Jesus opens our eyes to see him, to see our rescuer, but it takes us recognizing that we need saving at all. You know, we're not saved by grace plus. It's not like a prison sentence where we've all got to do our time, but some of us get off early because of good behavior. You know, all this guy had ahead of him was darkness, and he knew that, which meant that when Jesus presented him with another way, he got straight to it. But let's look at it from another way, the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees have a bit of a bad rep. They're the sort of cartoon villain of the Bible, or the New Testament at least. But I want to do a little bit of a PR overview, you know, a redo. Because the Pharisees, at least initially, did actually want to serve God. They wanted to do it the right way. They wanted to sanctify every bit of day-to-day life. So the way the law puts across sanctity and holiness is that you know, there, are, there are rules that show the sanctity of the temple, like the priests have to wash, and that the holiness and sanctity of God in the temple is expressed to us in this physical way. But the Pharisees write this extra book called the Halakha, and these are rules that make sure you don't break the actual rules, so they're like secondary rules. 
So, you know, priests have to wash before entering on the temple on festival days in the law. So the Pharisees say, oh, I see that you have to wash before you go into the temple on festival days, but I'll raise you everyone washing before the Sabbath and the festival meals. And then another Pharisee says, no, I see that, but I'll raise you everyone washing before every meal, and so on and so on. And they have all sorts of rules like this, especially for the Sabbath. So if you imagine God's will in the center, like the center of the temple and the law here, then the Pharisees have built an outer wall around it. And then what Jesus points out in the Gospels is that actually the Pharisees have forgotten the middle bit. And they're just staring hard at this outer wall that they've made for themselves. So this is what they're doing when they're saying, yeah, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. And we know this man is a sinner, despite Jesus being the archetypal, the very essence of this middle section that they're so pent up about. But all they can see is this outer wall. The objection or calling Jesus demon-possessed is actually used throughout this bit of John, so from about John 6 to John 10 or 11. And it's really just the same thing over and over again, that Jesus demonstrates how he's the Messiah. You know, in Isaiah, it says that the Messiah will come and restore the sight to the blind. This isn't a standard miracle. This isn't just, you know, uh, like the other stuff that Jesus does. The blind becoming a seeing person, that is Messiah stuff. It's not just miracle stuff. It's Messiah stuff. We often villainize the Pharisees, but forget that we are guilty of everything that they are. You know, as everyone, well, I assume anyone has, has worked in the library at some stage of their life, you know, for exams or all those millennia ago when people did exams, if you've, if you've passed on. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm sure that we've all said, well, okay, so today I sat in the library for 12 hours. Yeah, I did have that bit when I looked at Facebook. Oh, yeah, and I did watch that one, no, I mean, two episodes of Friends because it was, it was a double bill series finale, so I had to watch both. And, but I sat in the library from 8 till 8, you know, so I put a good shift in. Or maybe conversely we go, ah, oh, those people, they, you know, they pray seven times a day and all their friends have become Christians and they have this really cool Bible and they were walking on the cam earlier and I can't even walk on water at all. You know, they, they, we, whether we come off well or badly, we address our lives in this quota religious system. We say, which bit boxes have I ticked? And we say, am I good or bad based on that? And that's what the Pharisees do. In medicine, there are all these algorithms that add up to make decisions for us. So whether you've got this risk factor or you're over this age or you travel to this country, and then it scores it and then it says, maybe you should try this treatment or I think this person probably has this diagnosis. But the discipleship and the Christian life is not like this. Discipleship and the Christian life is not like this. The Christian journey is not about making Jesus unnecessary in our lives, but it's actually realizing that Jesus is the only necessary in our lives. The more we add in, the more walls that we build, the more like the Pharisees we become, the less we see this middle part. You know, we even see in the Pharisees' worldview, that it's dominated by this quota system, this religious point scoring. When they say to the man, you were steeped in sin since birth, how dare you lecture us? That this person's value is on what box they've ticked and who they are. 
You might be thinking, oh, I know this. I've heard this talk a thousand times. Yeah, grace, cool. But actually, we've got to get real. You know, the Pharisees wanted that too. They wanted to be hardcore. They wanted to be macho. They wanted to have that extra. They needed to be the above and beyond. But actually, John is getting at one thing. The simple truths of the gospel. Who Jesus is and what he's done for us. You know, I wear glasses and often I don't have that special bit of cloth that you get in a glasses case when you buy it. So if I get a smudge or something, I have to use my shirt. But then because the shirt doesn't have the sort of magical microfiber properties, it doesn't get the grease off, so it just smudges the grease everywhere. And Charlie's like, why are your glasses so dirty at the end of the day? But actually, we generate this system for ourselves. We have a solution to the problems we find ourselves in, but actually it just doesn't help. It doesn't work. The real solution comes when we look at Jesus in this passage. He points us in the direction of, at the beginning of the story, saying, I am the light of the world. And later when he says, for judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see and those who, will see, who see will become blind. Now, Jesus doesn't actually stop talking at the end of this passage. So really, if we wanted to be kind of true to John's image, we should have read all the way to the end of chapter 10, but I thought that was probably a little bit too much. Um, so, and in jo- chapter 10, Jesus says that he is the gate in which his people, his sheep, come into a sheepfold. Now, the sheepfold is kind of heaven. It's this eternal life. And actually, he is the gate in which we come through. But the Pharisees are trying to make their own gate. And just as I said at the beginning, John has one thing on his mind when he's included these stories in the gospel. To show us that Jesus is the Messiah. That he's not a religious consultant, but actually he's the target. He's the focus of everything we do. So what's the difference between the blind man and the Pharisees? So the blind man gets that Jesus is the gate, whereas the Pharisees are trying to build their own. And so it is with us. We all have times or aspects of our lives when we say, I've got this. I know how my life's going to turn out. Like in medicine, I'm just on a conveyor belt until I retire. Like I just know exactly what I need to do to get to where I want to be. But actually, the truth is that we don't have that assurance We're hopeless without Jesus. Discipleship is this gradual process of realizing that we've made boxes to tick. But actually, all we need to do is look at Jesus to see that we're hopeless with that. All of us know that one way or another, we're getting something wrong. Or we're deficient in some way. Or we've had disappointments in our lives. You know, throughout the last four years, or well, I suppose my entire life. I've had moments when I've been entirely sure of myself that I'm going to achieve something or do something. You know, last year I trialed for the GB Ultimate Team. And when I was there at the trial, I was like, this is so great. I'm so short. All these people are rubbish. I'm so amazing. And then, I was, well, I kind of thought that, yeah. Um, <laughs> I was like, I, wasn't, I didn't think that. No, I didn't think that. Um, and I was like, this is my time. I'm going to go to Australia, play in the World Championships. And actually, I got a disappointing email four months later when they said, no, you didn't make it. And then they they showed me my scores of what I'd done, and actually they were all exceptionally disappointing. And then I trialed for another team 
for the World Championships this summer. And actually, they said two practices in, mate, you're not going to do it. Don't bother, mate. Don't. I was commuting for two hours, and they said, probably not worth it. You know, actually, that may feel very trivial to you because it's ultimate frisbee, but actually, it was very important to me. You know, or like just all through our lives, we build these parachutes full of holes that we think are going to help us. But actually, Jesus is saying, don't bother with that because I'm going to give you wings. You know, each one of us have these tick boxes, whether we say we're filling them or not, and whether we're counting ourselves in or out, unless we realize that all we are is sitting on the street, completely blind, waiting for Jesus to come along and save us. Unless we realize that, then we're not going to get the fullness of what Jesus is offering us. We're presented with the best news that we could ever hope to share with anyone. We're presented with Jesus, the light who shines in the darkness. And he's offering us the opportunity to see. Whether that comes in recovering sight to us who feel like helpless beggars with nothing to give, or those of us who feel blinded by our own ability to tick boxes. This encounter cuts straight to the bone of the issue. That nothing we do can light up our darkness, but he can. This is the crux of everything. You know, we've been invited to the show, the best party, the best bring and share lunch that the church have ever put on. Where we haven't, we've forgotten to bring anything, but Jesus has brought steak, champagne, and chocolate fountain. You know, there's no quiche in sight. (laughs) Unless heaven is more quiche orientated than my heaven, idea of heaven is. The goodness of God that we share with people isn't foremost a religious crutch or a helpful set of morals or even a loving and supporting community of brilliant people like we have here. But it's first and foremost this exchange between a blind and penniless, hopeless beggar with the living, generous, powerful creator of the whole universe. You know, it doesn't matter whatever you feel you've done or who you are or why you're here, whether people have told you that you are God's gift to the world or whether you think that you are entirely worthless. Jesus is coming up to you, sitting and begging on the street and giving you sight. John's first chapter is like an overture for the whole gospel where he explains this manifesto that he's got of saying, Jesus is the light of the world. And he says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. That last bit means that actually it's not about what we look like, what family we were brought in, or how much your schooling cost, or what university you went to. But actually, it was born of God. Your identity as a child of God, as an accepted member of this family, as an heir, was actually born of God. He's offering us the best possible deal. So as we move into response now, let's celebrate that.